Good morning. You guys doing well? Good to have you with us. Man, this has been a crazy ride as we've been working our way through the book of Judges. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Judges chapter 16. We've got two more after this weekend, and then we'll be heading into a brand new teaching series uh, through the book of Galatians. Can't wait. It's a good one. We'll be talking a lot about the gospel and God's amazing grace. That's what that book is all about. But uh, a couple more here in the book of Judges. Braveheart has been our teaching series, Courage in a World of Compromise. And what, what are we going to talk about this morning? Unsaved people. Woo-hoo-hoo. That ought to be interesting. Hey, push me just a tad if you would, please. Thanks. Have you ever given your best in a relationship and gotten the worst in return? Anybody? What do you think? Yep, 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 yep. Don't point them out in here. <laughs> That's dangerous. But I think we've all had that experience before. Deep relational wounds can certainly diminish our sense of security and personal value. But even worse, what happens is that we, we tend to repeat the same mistakes of judgment over and over and over again. Or, I've seen this happen, is that we just kind of discard all relationships. We, just, we build an impenetrable wall around our hearts to keep everyone out. And, and either way, uh, we and those closest to us lose. So here's the big question uh, this morning is how can bad relationships make us wise rather than hard? How can bad relationships, so when we deal with bad relationships, the tendency, and I've seen this, I've seen this in, in, in church life a lot, where people go to a bad church or they experience some, some negativity in a church and, and, uh, and of course you're gonna have some conflict in a church setting. But I've seen how people oftentimes will respond, they throw the baby out with the bathwater. They just, well, forget it, I'll never go to church again, and, uh, or any number of things, or in relationships in general, or in friendships, or in a, in a marriage relationship, rather than to allow it to help them to, to be stronger. Samson is the epitome of an unsafe person. We started talking about him last week, and if you were, weren't here, I would encourage you to, to listen to the message. We talked about character, and we said this, it's not what happens to us, but what happens in us that either makes us or breaks us in life. And not minimizing what has happened to you. Some of you are going through really difficult times. I understand that, my heart goes out to you, and yet at the same time, what's most important is the character that you have and that you believe beyond a shadow of a doubt or beyond a reasonable doubt that God is for you and not against you. And the more you begin to understand that, that gives you the character, gives you the ability, gives you the perseverance, gives you the love that you desperately need to get through the difficulties, to navigate those things. So it's not what happens to us, but what happens in us that either makes us or breaks us in life. And, uh, and we see that in Samson, he, this guy lacks character. He's got all sorts of giftings and yet he is impulsive, unteachable, untrustworthy, violent, egotistical, emotionally immature, sexually addicted womanizer. I mean, that's what we found out last week as we studied through that. Yet, God in his sovereign grace uses Samson's sinfulness to bring about deliverance, pouring his favor on people who deserve his wrath, which is a definition of grace, that we have his favor. We get God's favor, unmerited favor to people who would deserve God's wrath, and that's what we see in the story. And so, we're gonna talk about unsafe people. Are you an unsafe person? What does it mean to be safe people? Boy, it, it's packed full in this, in this story here today, but before we head into the text, 
We're going to go completely through uh, chapter 16 of Judges, and then we'll unpack these notes. Before we do that, let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? Once, once again, God, we are delighted to be here today. We, we love you. Um, Father God, you are our most satisfying reality. In your presence is fullness of joy. And your steadfast love is better than anything in life. You created us because you were so in love with community and the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that you wanted a world full of people to share it with. And our need for community with people and you, the God who created us, is indispensable to human flourishing. So teach us and empower us to love you, God, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength so that we can love our neighbor, our family, our friends, our coworkers as ourselves, through knowing what safe and healthy relationships are for your glory in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. Take a look at this text now. So let's start working. You can see that he hasn't changed much. In fact, his problems, his addictions are even getting worse. Look at uh, chapter 16 of Judges, verse 1. Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went in to her. And the Gazites were told, Samson has come here, and they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city, so they're, they're wanting to capture him because he's just creating all sorts of problems, has killed quite a number of, uh, uh, what are they called? Philistines, thank you. I'm, I might need help here this morning, okay, as I can see. Thank you very much, David. Uh, so Philistines, so the Philistines are kind of uh, uh, surrounding him there and uh, they're wanting to capture him. They kept quiet all night saying, let us wait till the light of the morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, so he's gonna sneak out before morning, midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. Stop there just for a minute. Uh, it's, it's really important. It's, it's a bit metaphorical. It's almost like he's kind of rubbing their face in this. You're not going to catch me. The city gate re really represented the protection to the city. It was also the place where the officials met to transact business. And so kind of metaphorically, as he grabs this, the city gates, he's showing them, you can't catch me. You can't touch me. I'm more powerful than you. It's, it's to possess the gate of enemies is metaphorical for that we're defeating you as our enemies. And that's what he's doing. He's obviously showing still more arrogance, but he's going, he's being drawn deeper and deeper into his sin. Uh, so what we have in these three verses, first of all, his recklessness in going to the capital of the Philistines. You also have his sexual addiction, sleeping with a prostitute. So there's this impulsiveness and this sexual addiction that's has control of his life. And the strength of the trap surrounded by guards in the walled city are all greater than they were in the previous two chapters, which is telling us something. Here it is, it's on your notes, first fill in the blank. Addictions in, or compulsions will increase over time requiring greater and greater strength to break free. And um, that's what we have. Let me define for you an addiction. Addiction is dependence upon a mood-altering substance or experience to temporarily escape the pain of life. A compulsion, 
compulsions are characterized by, see if you can track with this, this definition, um, are characterized by intrusive thoughts that produce anxiety, and then they, that produces this repetitive, repetitive behaviors aimed at reducing that, that anxiety. And you guys remember the movie, as, as Good As It Gets, Jack Nicholson? Remember, he was o- really very OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. Obsessive, you're obsessing over certain thoughts. It could be your kids, you're obsessing over that. Obsessive compulsive uh, disorder. So you obsess over these certain thoughts and it triggers these certain actions that tend to go to an extreme. So over time, if you don't deal with it, uh, they'll, they'll drive you deeper and deeper. They go deeper and deeper. That's what addictions do. That's what compulsions do. Uh, for Jack Nicholson, it was uh, a number of things. He was just kind of a clean, clean freak that he would wash his hands uh, and use a whole bar of soap, throw it away, and then he would bring his own plastic silverware to the, or it wasn't silverware, but plastic fork and knife to the restaurant because he was afraid to touch anything there. So it becomes this almost an extreme weirdness in our life, this OCD, if you don't take control of it. Now, there's a book by the, by the name uh, of Addictions written by Edward Welch, which is really a good book. It's, uh, the subtitle is A Banquet in the Grave. A Banquet in the Grave. And this is what he says, addictions are ultimately a disorder of worship. And then he answers, he asks this question, will we worship ourselves and our own desires or will we worship the true God? That's the bottom line. So fundamentally, our, our addictions and compulsions are driven by, by a worship problem. What are we worshiping? And, and you maybe have heard me say this before, you wanna change your behavior? Yeah, I do. Change what you worship. It was St. Augustine that said the key to change is not the acts of the will. Oftentimes we focus on behavioral modification, but it's not, not the acts of the will. It's the loves of the heart. So if you really want to bring change to your life, you, gotta, you change what you worship. You change the loves of your heart. And even though you may say you're worshiping God, your behavior betrays you and what dominates your thoughts and what stirs your deepest emotions. So you have to kind of go much deeper. And so certainly... Uh, You see this in Samson. Hey, here's the fact. Every one of us wants to be happy. I don't think anybody here would say, no, I don't want to be happy, Pastor Ray. I just uh, want to be unhappy. And so I try to do all those things that would make me unhappy. No, actually, you do everything that you do is typically because of it's driven by your own happiness. And in fact, God has placed this desire in each of our hearts to lead us to him. And uh, because only he can satisfy the deepest longings of our heart. So there is a happiness that's found in him that cannot be found anywhere in this world. And so here's the biggest lie that we are up against day in and day out, is that you're going to find your deepest longing of your soul satisfied somewhere in creation as opposed to the creator. That's the biggest lie that we compete with and we struggle with, and that's really the deep root of our issues. It's multi-layered. There's certainly a lot, a lot to that, but, but that's the issue. We, we believe and we chase after the things we chase after because we believe, and that's what Samson. Samson was born into really a, a great family, knew the Lord, and yet he's chasing after all of these things in his life. 
and it's gonna, it's gonna end in his death. Here's the next thing on your notes. Adversity is, is hard, but success is even harder because it gives us a false sense of security, putting us in danger of spiritual complacency and compromise. We see this with Samson. God's blessings can be used as a reason to forget God, as we saw in the Gideon cycle. As one Puritan minister, John Flavel, Flavel summed it up, Outward gains are ordinarily attended with inward losses, while conversely, inward gain, we're talking character here, growth in humility, self-control, wisdom are ordinarily attached to outward losses, outward losses of finances, careers, or relationships falling apart, things like that. So let me ask you, when, when have you grown the most in your relationship with God? Typically, it's not through good times. Good times, we become complacent. We kind of, kind of put God on the shelf, kind of do our own thing. Don't take God as seriously. Don't come to church regularly. Don't read our Bible faithfully. Don't pray earnestly. We don't do those things. Just goes to show you, you know, the, the wickedness and the sinfulness of our own hearts. No, it's typically during really difficult times it puts us on our knees and we really begin to seek God. And Samson falsely inferred from God's blessing that he couldn't be defeated and therefore could live as he pleased. The danger of success is that we infer falsely from God's blessing that we, hey, we we got this blessing and these giftings because we're smart and strong and therefore we're self-sufficient. We don't really need God. And so... So uh, success does that to us, and that's why it's so dangerous, and so we see this happening in the story here. Now, let's continue reading. That's the first couple things, and we're we're seeing this happen in his life. Let's continue reading now in verse four. And after this, so after he, he went to bed with the prostitute, and then he took the doors of the city and kind of showing off. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah, and uh I'm told that in the Hebrew here is that what he said to her is when he met her, he said to her, you complete me. And she said, shut up. You had me at hello. Okay, that's not actually in the Hebrew, okay. I just, I made all that up. But uh, that's from a movie, Jerry Maguire. But uh, this story is nonetheless... uh, shallow and superficial as that, and those statements that when someone says to you that you complete me, that's the making of a a very bad relationship. Because there's only one that can complete you, and, and it isn't a human, it isn't a person, it's not a marriage relationship, it's only God. And we're going to talk about that as we kind of work through this, but if, if uh, someone says, hey, you complete me, is that I, I need you to be complete. That's codependency is the term that was used years ago. I don't know, know if it's still used, but it's very unhealthy. Or I need, if, if I need you to be complete or you need me for me to be complete. So there's this, there's this weird unhealthiness. But also, if someone says uh, you, uh, you had me at hello, that's impulsiveness. That's, uh, it's not love at first sight. It's more like lust. It has more to do with the person than it really has to do. It has more to do with the individual that's saying that as opposed to the one that they're saying that they love. It's actually more lust. It's more about getting. We talked about that last week. So I'd encourage you to listen to that. 
And so, quite interesting, so he, he hooks up with Delilah and the, and the lords of the Philistines. You're going to see there's such dysfunction here. Let's kind of work through some of this dysfunction. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, seduce him and see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him, and we will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. And Samson said to her, if they bind me with uh, seven fresh bowstrings, that that have not been dried, then I shall uh, become weak and be like any other man. I mean, he's lying to her. That's not true. So there's this, this dysfunctional, she's going to use him, but he's using her too. There's this using going back and forth. Just as we saw with him and this prostitute, they're both using each other. And, um, and so the, the, then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber, and she said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. The Philistines are upon you, Samson, but he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Then Delilah said to Samson, behold, you have mocked me. You have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. We'll stop there just for a minute. Look up here. Uh, so remember last week I said that his, his bride from, I think it was chapter 14, 15, yeah, 14, I said that she, win the, she wins the prize for nagging. No, I think actually Delilah does because she's going to work him hard. She's going to really work him hard here, and uh, she's going to kind of hammer him a little bit. And she's, remember what we said last week too, that controlling manipulative people used a couple different tactics. One is uh, anger. And I'll be mad to get you to jump through their hoops for them. And then the other one, you guys remember what the second one was? Guilt. guilt. Yes, good. It's guilt. I'll be sad you hurt me. Not that you don't express anger and sadness toward one another, but never in an effort to manipulate and control someone. It's only, it should be always motivated out of love, and there should be that love and healthiness in that relationship. But she's using, she's using guilt. You don't love me. You know, if you loved me, you would tell me the secrets of your heart. And so it's, it's quite interesting um, here as, as we work through that. Now, we'll kind of summarize the next few verses, 11 through 15. And so she does this two more times. He says that if they bind me with new ropes, and then he breaks those ropes. And then he says, if they weave the seven locks of my hair with the web, which is interesting. It's an interesting thing. Fasten it tight in the pen, and then he breaks out of that. And then jump to verse 16. You'd think he would learn after a while, but for some reason he just keeps playing right into this. And uh, she's after him, she's after to use him, but he can't see beyond that. Verse 16, and when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. I give up. You're wearing me out. And he told her all of his heart and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I uh, have been a Nazarite to God 
from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that uh, he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees. So, I mean, this guy's really overconfident. He's falling asleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. Stop there. Don't read on, because the story gets even uh, more sad as we work through this and the trajectory that he's headed here. But let me give you some, uh, some of the next fill in the blanks here. Is, uh, the name Delilah uh, sounds like the night when you look at it in the Hebrew. In verses one through three, night was mentioned four times uh, in those first three verses and now Samson is lying in the night's bed and it will be his destruction. It's the trajectory of his life. Let me give you the next fill in the blank. Sin initially fascinates, and then it eventually and inevitably assassinates. So sin fascinates, and then it assassinates. I heard an old country preacher say, if sin ain't fun, then you aren't doing it right. <laughs> and, um, and that's true. Sin is unbelievably fun. And yet, it's terribly destructive, and that's the path that he's on. Romans 3.23, it says, for all have done what? All have sinned and fall what? Short of the glory of God. What does that mean? It means this, that we are blind and we fail to see how desirable, beautiful, and satisfying God is, and we don't desire God's glory above all else. We actually think, so this is what sin is, the essence of sin is that I think I'm gonna find satisfaction in a relationship, in more money, in some pursuit, some earthly pursuit. Nothing wrong with any of those things, but when those things, those good things become God things, when they become ultimate things in our life, our source of meaning and purpose and direction in life, that's when they become destructive. We put them over and above God. And we're on a trajectory that is destructive towards us because those God things, they drive us when we seek them. They disappoint us when we get them because they never really satisfy. That's what drives compulsions and addictions because you keep thinking, okay, maybe just one more, maybe just a little bit more money, maybe just another promotion, just one, one, one more thing, one more this, one more that, whatever it is. Sometimes it takes people their whole life to figure that out, that none of this stuff in creation will ultimately satisfy the deepest longing of our soul. And so, and so it drives us when we seek it, it disappoints us when we get it, but it devastates us when we lose it because we think that we can't live with, without it. It rocks our world. It also tells us, and, and that's part of the, the destructiveness of it, Romans 6.23, it says, uh, for the wages of sin is what? Death. It's death. And we know that death, physical death, is the soul's, the spirit, soul of the person is separated from their body. And so what is, what's spiritual death? We're separated from God. It separates us from God. And that in itself is death. Jeremiah 2, uh, 13, we, it's a great definition of, of our wickedness. It says what we typically do in sin is that sin is the suicidal exchange 
of the fountain of living water, Christ, for broken cisterns that maybe satisfy for a, for a season, but in, in time they, they run out. They run dry. They don't satisfy. So um, sin is what we do when we're not satisfied with God. So the key to overcoming sin is finding our deepest satisfaction in Him. Regardless of how that sweet secre- secretary in the office, uh, you know, plays up to you, you know, or, or rubs up against you or whatever, there's those, uh, you know, whatever it is, or that car that drives by and you go, why, wow, I've got to have that, or, or any number of things, whatever it is, whatever it is that, that draws your heart, what is it that competes for your heart's deepest affections and loyalties away from God? You need to know what it is. I know what mine are. Oh, my goodness, and I fight like crazy against those things. I have to. I fight for my life against those things in my life, those things that would draw my heart away from God. I don't let them land in my head and my mind, and I don't entertain those things. I wrestle against those things and pray against those things and memorize Scripture against those things. That's what Samson should have been doing. And it takes, it's, it's a, lot of, a lot of work in a lot of ways, and I'm, I'm trying, to, uh, trying to worship God more than I'm worshiping all the stuff in this world. As I said, it's a, it's a worship issue. Here's the next uh, point in your notes. Unsafe, destructive relationships happen when you can't bear to disappoint someone even though they are leading you to ruin. So he's in this dysfunctional, unhealthy relationship, and he can't bear to disappoint her and she's kind of working him and so it's going back and forth. Any love that is afraid to confront is really not love but rather a kind of emotional hunger or selfish desire to be loved. When you're afraid to do what is right toward God and toward the one that you love, then you've turned the one that you love into an idol. It's idolatry. So when you're afraid to speak the truth, not only are you dishonoring God, but you're dishonoring the relationship and the person that you love. And you've turned that person that you love and you find yourself walking around on eggshells, uh, it's, it's because you've got some idolatry going on in your heart rather than to speak the truth uh, to them. And of course, listen, 1 Peter 4.8 says that love covers a multitude of sins. Believe me, my wife has had to cover over a multitude of sins as it relates to me. But there are some issues that she can't just cover over because they're detrimental to my life as an individual, but also as, as a couple, they're detrimental to us as a couple. And she has to call me on those things. Now, of course, I've had to do that more to her than she has to me. <laughs> you guys know that's a lie. <laughs> Actually, it, it, it's really been a big, that's a big, big lie. <laughs> she's had to call me out more than I've ever, ever had to call her out. Seriously. I've needed it more. And thank God for my wife that she has. And she was, and initially in the early days of our marriage relationship, she had to walk around eggshells. She told me that. She said, I'd like to speak truth to you, but, but you can't handle the truth. <laughs> she didn't say it quite like that, but, but it was that. He says, I'd love to be able to speak truth to you. I said, come on, I want to hear the truth. He says, you can't handle the truth. He says, anytime I try to handle the truth, you become defensive and come after me. And I says, it's not even safe for me to be able to share the truth with you. And so she, first of all, had to deal with my attitude and my response to her in creating a safe environment so that she could even speak to me. And uh, 
And wow, I, I realized, and so love covers a multitude of sins. And so we talked about also boundaries. And so this idea of boundaries, boundaries involves two, two basic uh, items, two basic things. You guys remember what boundaries involve? Grace and truth. Love and truth. Grace provides the safety, so you work really, really hard to create uh, a cradle of security for your moments of vulnerability. That's the truth, so that you can speak the truth. So if you find somebody being defensive, you have to come back to creating that uh, cradle of security. Obviously, there's some insecurity, and then you even have to address that. You even have to talk about that. Hey, hey, man, I'd love to be able to talk to you, but I can't even talk to you because you're, you're going off on me or you're defensive or you argue, argue me you know, out of this or whatever. You're, you're controlling, you're manipulative. And I was, I was very controlling and manipulative and in all of that. And so, uh, so grace provides the safety, truth provides the structure, and that structure involves being able to say both yes and no to certain things. The problem is we have boundary issues oftentimes because we say yes to everything or we say, and oftentimes I've heard people when they've gone through the boundaries class because they've tended to say yes to too many things, and then they say no to everything. And that's that other extreme. So that's, that's still a boundary issue, by the way. And I understand that. We're going to swing like a pendulum until we begin to find that balance. And we still have a problem, though, with boundaries if we're saying yes to the bad and no to the, to the good. We need to say no to the bad and yes to the good. And we've got to know the difference. We've got to know the difference. And so I'm, I'm looking at this relationship here with... Uh, with Samson and Delilah, and I, I started really thinking, so what was it that attracted them to one another? And this is what's interesting, is that you guys know this, that opposites attract, like hand in glove, and that even means in, dis, in dysfunctional ways too. So there's some really good ways that that can happen. For instance, compliant people typically uh, connect and hook up with what kind of people? More controlling people, more assertive people, yeah. Uh, passive aggressive people tend to connect with open aggressive people. Feeling oriented people tend to connect with reason people. Spenders, spenders, my wife. <laughs> Connected with savers, savers, me. And she thought, and, and, but, but, but here's the deal. Then, then as she got to know me, I wasn't just a good saver, I was a tight wad. Because what was good is running to an extreme, a little OCD, because, oh, we, we, you know, I was building my security on that, and uh, hers was more, her significance was built on that. So, so you can certainly see that. And so there's this homing instinct. You guys know what a homing instinct is. It's just as some birds and fish can navigate through unfamiliar areas toward an original location, back to home. We as people tend to always, listen to me, we as people tend to always go back to that which is most familiar to us, even if it's dysfunctional. Because we don't know any better, really, because it, what, it, it's either through nature and nurture, we're nurtured in a certain way in the home that we learn unwritten rules and roles and, and ways of relating, and if we don't have that corrected by God's word, then we go out into adulthood uh, returning to that which is most familiar to us, even if it's dysfunctional. It's a, it's a homing instinct within us. And so certainly, as you look at uh, Samson and Delilah, there, there was a connection there that was very dysfunctional. Uh, and of course, in their culture, just as in our culture, follow your heart, be true to yourself. That's our culture. 
And yet the Bible tells us in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That'll get you into trouble. You follow your heart. And, and certainly they were doing what we see in our culture today. We tend to look external or externally rather than internally. We look at the gifts. Oh, look at them. Rather than internally, their, their character. And we use our feelings... We're very impulsive rather than using reason. Let me give you a quick story here before we move on. Um, when I worked out at Palo Verde uh, out there, I, there for a while, it was before all the freeway system, I was flying out there with a guy who uh, we flew from uh, Deer Valley Airport. And there were a number of planes that would fly out there and they'd land in this old crop dusting strip that was right on the road, really close to uh, Palo Verde. And, uh, and this guy that was uh, really a good, uh, really knew the plane and would fly, and he was instrument trained, but even in storms, we wouldn't fly and we would drive in, even if it would delay us, obviously it would, but uh, he would do that. There was a guy, there were some guys that would fly, that were flying consistently from Prescott down to Palo Verde, and uh, this guy that was flying the plane was not instrument trained, and they went ahead and flew in a storm and they became disoriented, and he flew the plane into the ground, killing all of them. Why is that? Why do we need to be instrument trained? Because you're basically flying by feelings, and kind of like, kind of sight, and kind of how's this feel, and yeah, it looks like we got a good level, but they lost all orientation in the storm and didn't realize it and flew the the plane right into the ground, killing them all. So if you're, if you're impulsive, if you're going by feelings, it goes back to what we were saying last week. So, so if, you've, if you've got character, character, and this is what's gonna help you to get through the storms of life, character is that your behavior is the product of choices based on, on biblical values. The instrument panel, God's word. Because right now, man, I'm in a storm, I don't know where God is, I don't know which end is up, but I'm gonna keep flying the plane based on what God's word says. You gotta keep coming back to the instrument panel, otherwise you're gonna fly your life into the ground and destroy not only your life, but probably a lot of other people's lives around you. And see, that's part of that. That's why it's so critical. As opposed to someone who lacks character, someone who lacks character is that their, their behavior is the product of feelings. Feelings. Nothing more than feeling. You guys remember that song? Please, please sing that song for us, Pastor Ray. No, no, no. Listen, if you're based on feelings, if you're judging people based on externals, you're gonna crash and burn. If it's feelings based on people, things, and circumstances, you're gonna crash. That's why we gotta keep coming back to God's word. And the Bible gives us some really great direction as it relates to this in our lives. And so certainly, you know, unsafe, destructive relationships happen when you, can, when you can't bear to disappoint someone even though they are leading you to ruin. It's because you're build, building it on externals, you're building it on feelings, you're, you don't have the character that you need. Proverbs 27, six, it says, faithful are the wounds of a friend do you have friends that are faithful in wounding you? Well, these wounds are good wounds. And then it says, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. They flatter you. 
So you don't relish conflict or avoid it. You're not quick to criticize or afraid to confront. Here's the next one. We need to pick up the pace here because there's a number of things we need to look at here. Unsafe relationships are about using one another rather than serving one another. So the difference is between consumer versus covenant. Co- uh, consumer relationship is that my needs are more important than the relationship. And that makes sense when it comes to my, my grocer because it, you know if I'm shopping at Fry's and they jack up the prices and the, and the quality drops in their groceries, of course you're gonna go find another grocer. That makes sense. But you don't do that in a marriage relationship or in a friendship or in a church. But people do that all the time. People do that all the time because covenant is about, it's about the relationship is more important than, than your needs. And when you do that, then your needs will be met. What motivated Delilah to betray her lover? Anybody? Money. Money, 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 money. Man, where am I getting all these songs here this morning? Okay. Greed, fame, power, influence. I mean, uh, she could be set up the rest of her life. What motivated Samson? Lust, sex. I think he had a sexual addiction. I think overconfident love of danger. I think he liked danger because he could, you know, bring it on. When his life was a little bit threatened, he could bust out. You can't hold me. I think it was overconfident love of danger and love of women. And no doubt they were saying to each other, hey, I'm with you because I love you, but what they meant is that I am with you because you are useful to me, and doubtless they had a lot of passion and romance, but it was all done out of a motive of self-enhancement rather than self-giving for the growth of the other. Let me go through a list here real quick. This is from uh, John Townsend and Henry Cloud's book, Unsafe People. I'm just gonna read through the list. It's a real quick list. Uh, if you want this list, uh, you can buy the book, or I'll, I'll See if Karen will post it maybe on our notes section where you download the messages uh, on our website. But let me just read through this because I think it really kind of helps us to understand what unsafe people look like because there, there'll be elements in this of all of us here. And so unsafe people, first of all, personal traits, they think they have it all together instead of admitting their weaknesses. They are religious instead of spiritual. You know the difference? We're gonna talk about it in a little bit, but just, you're just going through, the, you're going through the motions. You're here because you're gonna check the church box and move on with your day, rather than to really, really encounter Christ and know Him and love Him. They're defensive instead of open to feedback. They're self-righteous instead of humble. They only apologize instead of changing their behavior. You ever been around people that just apologize all the time, but you never see any change? See, that would be an unsafe person. They avoid working on their problems instead of dealing with them. They demand trust instead of earning it. Well, you just have to trust me. Yee, red flag. That's a big red flag. It's like you don't, you don't demand trust. It has to be earned over time based on performance. Believe they are perfect instead of admitting their faults. They blame others instead of taking responsibility. They lie instead of telling the truth. They are stagnant instead of growing. Let me tell you something. I don't care how long you've been following Jesus. Are you growing? Are you continuing to grow? You need to. That's the Christian life. If not, you're becoming an unsafe person. There's an unhealthiness there, and that's the personal traits. Let me give you some interpersonal traits. They avoid closeness instead of connecting. They're only concerned about I instead of we. They resist freedom instead of encouraging it. In other words, how do they respond to your no? Do they resist that? 
So they resist freedom instead of encouraging it. They flatter us instead of confront us. They condemn us instead of forgiving us. They stay in parent-child roles instead of relating as equals. They're unstable over time instead of being consistent. And the reason why they have that instability is because their, their behavior is based on their feelings, is the product of feelings based on the people, things, and circumstances. As I said last week, you don't, fall, you don't fall into love, you commit to it. Love is saying, I'll be there no matter what. So it creates a stability in your life. Listen, listen, in a marriage relationship, you should never drop the, the D word. That should never be in your vocabulary. You guys know what I'm talking about. You don't make threats like that. You're in it for the long haul. That's what commitment is. You're going to work this out. Otherwise, it creates this insecurity. And then before long, you're kind of walking around on eggshells. And that insecurity creates a distancing. There's no intimacy in that. There's no trust. And then our negative influence on us rather than a positive one, we'll talk more about that in a minute. And they gossip instead of uh, keeping secrets. Oh, my goodness. I have been devastated by people that gossip. I've gotten together with guys and shared my heart only to have them have them share it with others. And it was hurt. It was hurtful. And yet, and yet I have to say, I went ahead and worked through that, allowed God to bring healing, and I just became wiser in that. I didn't totally, you know, say, well, I'm not going to get together with anybody ever again. No, I know I need to. I need that. I need to get close to others, but I just need to be wiser in the people that I get close to and continue to work through that. And that's just part of the learning the health. Here's the next point in your notes. So safe people, here's the definition of safe people, help us get closer to God get closer to others, and to become the real person God created us to be. Who's the safest person of all? Anybody? Jesus. Yeah, absolutely. Let me give you the verse, John 1.14. I love it. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then it goes on and says, and he was full of grace and truth. What is that saying? He dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. He was approachable. He connected with us. The God of the galaxies came to this earth and connected with us, got in the middle of our mess with us and spoke truth to us but loved us just the way we are but didn't let us stay that way. He loved us way too much to let us stay that way but he accepted us. I accept you as you are. I believe you're valuable. I care when you hurt but I desire what is best for you and so I'm gonna speak truth to you in the context of this love that I'm giving to you. See, that's what he did for us. Here's the next point. You must regularly have a hard experience of God's love and truth that fulfills the deepest longing of your soul or you will tend to use other people to boost your worth. I've seen that. I've seen that in my own life, even as a pastor. Um, I've seen pastors do that in their churches. Try to get people to jump through all their hooves. You gotta make me feel better about myself. You know, or whatever it is, it can be attendance, it can be numbers, it can have people doing certain things, certain tasks. Really unhealthy, terribly unhealthy. And um, it's, it's not what God wants us to be motivated by. Unless you have a deep, soul-satisfying relationship with God, even the most passionate I love you will really mean I need you to make myself feel as if I am worth something. Quote you've heard me use many times before, Les and Leslie Parrott from their book, Relationships. It says, if you try to find intimacy with another person before achieving a sense of identity on your own, and I like to add, on your own through Christ, 
All of your relationships become an effort to complete yourself. The best you can bring to any relationship is, is deficit. It's, it's incompleteness because we're broken people. We're all broken. We live in a fallen world. We are desperate for Jesus. He's our completeness. It's in him where we find our satisfaction. And then out of that, then I can relate and connect with you appropriately. I'm not gonna use you. I'm gonna help you to see him more clearly and to connect with others and to become all that God's created you to be. See, that's, that's healthiness. Now let's continue reading verses 20 through 22 because as I said, the story really gets sad and, and she said, so he's laying on her lap, he's had the locks of his hair cut, and she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson, and he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. Oh, this is sad. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Think about that just for a minute. What does that mean? What does that mean? He did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to, to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles and he ground at the mill in the prison. But the hair, I love this. So here's hope. Here's hope. There's always hope. But the hair of his head, this is kind of speaking metaphorically because it's really, there's this renewal of his covenant in the midst of this pain with his eyes gouged out. I loved what uh, Pastor Darren told me this last week. He said, it wasn't until his eyes were gouged out that he began to see spiritually unlike he had ever seen before. I go, yeah, right on. He begins to see, he begins to renew his commitment to God. He begins to say, hey, wow, I thought I could find happiness out there, but it's only found in you. See, there's something happening in his heart right here, but the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Stop there just for a minute. Let me give you the next, uh, next thought here on your notes. Um, and and let, me just, let me just say something. I'm gonna read to you just a quote, and I've read this quote to you before because I, I wanted to read to you as it relates. So he didn't know that the, the Lord had left him. Francis Chan, it's a book I've quoted from, I think within the last year, uh, Forgotten God. Listen to what he says as it relates to this idea. Uh, subtitled, Reversing Our Tragic Neglect of the Holy Spirit. He says, I'm willing to bet that there are millions of churchgoers across America who cannot confidently say they have experienced his presence or action in their lives over the past year. And he goes on, he says, the benchmark of success in church services has become more about attendance and the rather than the movement of the Holy Spirit. In our entertainment uh, world and model of churches, yeah, it might have allevi alleviated some of the boredom for a few hours a week, but it has filled our churches with self-focused consumers rather than self-sacrificing servants attuned to the Holy Spirit. See, my heart for you week in and week out is that when you walk out of here, you have a sense of, of awe and intimacy with God. See, that's what I want for you more than anything. 
Uh, he goes on and he says, even our church growth can happen without him. Let's be honest, if you combine a charismatic speaker, talented worship band, and some hip creative events, people will attend your church, yet this does not mean that the Holy Spirit of God is actively working and moving in the lives of people who are coming. It simply means that you have created a space that is appealing enough to draw people in for an hour or two on Sunday. It certainly does not mean that people walk out of the doors, move to worship and in awe of God. People are more likely to describe the quality of the music or the appeal of the sermon than the one who is the reason people gather for church in the first place. Are you here? Just check on the box. Are you here to encounter God? See, that's what it's about. That's what I want for you more than anything. And um, here's the next point in your notes. To experience God's presence and power is not based on a magical formula, but meaningful fellowship with God by grace through faith in Jesus. Both Samson and the Philistines thought that his strength was, was a bit magical. They thought there was some sort of magical formula. Let me just say this real quick. Why don't you fill in the blank? Look up here. You gotta get this. When you turn on a lot of Christian TV, they almost preach kind of a magical formula. You gotta beware. It's heretical. That you pull all the levers, you do all the right things, God is, you know, God has to bless you because of that. And it becomes this form of magic. Here's what magic, magic is a matter of following the steps to the letter, which pushes a, a supernatural button and the power comes automatically. And the Philistines thought that he must be, he must do something to keep himself strong, which would be identified as a form of legalism. If I do all these things, if I obey God, then God will bless me. That's called legalism, and there's certainly blessing in obeying God. Don't get me wrong, but that's not why you obey him. You have phenomenal blessing. That's why you obey him. You, you obey him because of the blessing that you have in him. Uh, verse 5, they say, where does his great strength lie? They're trying to figure this out. Oh, there's some kind of technique here. And then Samson thought, I don't have to do anything to keep myself strong. Verse 20, I'll go out as before. Did you see that in verse 20? I'll just go out as I did before. No big deal. That's antinomianism. I can live like hell and it doesn't matter. I've got God's blessing anyway. It's all by God's grace. Wrong. And we're not sure when the, when the presence of the Lord left him, but he, he, had, he was clueless. He was clueless. And what's interesting about this is that I think that he was in union with God, but he wasn't in communion, and therefore it was just a matter of time. The power was gonna, was gonna leave him. God's presence and power working in our lives is not a technique to be mastered, but a relationship of awe and intimacy with God to be cultivated and celebrated. See, what mattered was not so much that Samson's hair had been cut, but that he did not know that the Lord had left him. He was not in communion with God. He was doing the church, check the church box gig. He was going through the motions. He might have been reading his Bible and praying, but it was just like something to do rather than a person to truly encounter. See, it's one thing to know that God is with you in a, in a general theological way. It's called the omnipresence of God, but it's altogether another. To know the God that is with you, to have a sense of his presence on your heart it's altogether different. He must be more than a theological concept. He must be a person who you interact with, depend upon, and find deep joy in. 
Once you've tasted, listen to me, once you've tasted of fellowship with God, once you've tasted of his presence, his absence is unbearable. And you will do everything you can to continue to live with that sense of his presence deep within your heart. See, that's what drives spiritual disciplines, Bible study, prayer, church, because you want to have a touch of God on your heart. You don't want it just to be clear to the mind. You want it to be real to your heart. That's why I study the Bible. That's why I pray, oh God, make the logic of your word on fire in my heart. I want to know you. I want to experience your love deep within me. I want to have a sense that you're grabbing a hold of me and holding me and hugging me. And let me tell you something. There's a major difference between just going through the motions and having that experience in your life because spiritual disciplines are really about increasing your capacity to experience his presence. Next point on your notes, beware. Therefore, beware of doing Christian duties mechanically rather than relationally. Spiritual disciplines and our obedience to God should flow out of our relationship with God rather than being an attempt to get favor and blessing from God. Now this takes us back to what it means to be a Christian. We'll knock this out real quick. You guys, when I say real quick, I don't ever do anything quick, do I? Okay. You guys know that. I'm, I'm just trying to trying to appease you a bit, but, uh, but here we go. So here we go. Anybody, anybody, good, bad, ugly, can know God through Christ. What I'm talking about here, this presence of God, this isn't like God doesn't have a secret society of intimate friends. Like, I'm, like it's just me and, uh, man, I wish you guys could experience what I have. No, you can have it too. And it's, and it's based on the grace of God. You see, Jesus lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. So when I put my faith in Jesus, the Father looks at me as if I lived the life that Jesus lived and died the death that Jesus died. And he treats me as he would treat his son. It's grace and I have access into the throne room of God. And oh, of course I wanna walk with him. Of course I wanna know him. Of course I wanna experience him because I've never experienced more satisfaction. I've never experienced more freedom than walking with him and knowing him. And that's what Samson was coming to the realization of. All these pursuits, all the chasing of what he was chasing, he realized, wait a minute, I'm worshiping the wrong stuff. I need to come back to worshiping the true and living God. That's where he's going to find his satisfaction. Let's end the story here. Verses 23 through, I love it. I love how the story ends. He dies, but boy, he dies with a, with a heart that's open wide to God. Verses 23 to the end of the story. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And they said, our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. All roads lead to God? I don't think so. This is a false God. You know, people say, well, as long as they're sincere, well, you can be, sinc- you can be sincerely wrong. These people are sincerely wrong. They're worshiping the wrong God. And the real, true, living God is going to bring the roof down on them. And, uh, and so 
Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand, and when the people saw him, they praised their God, for they said, our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us, and when their hearts were merry, they said, call Samson, that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of prison, and he entertained them, and they made him stand before the pillars, and Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, let me feel the pillars on which the house rest, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof, there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Notice this. You're going to see a change in Samson's heart. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once. Total humility. God, you're the only true and living God. Right in the middle of their worship service, he's crying out to the true and living God. He says, please strengthen me only this one once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. His life's totally surrendered to God. Then he bowed with all of his strength and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed during his life. Listen to the last point. Becoming and continuing as a Christian is about becoming weak to become strong. David Jackman writes, the Samson narrative begins with a strong man who is revealed to be weak weak in character, but it ends with a weak man who is stronger than ever he was before. Samson realized that humble admission of need and humble submission to God is the pathway to satisfaction and freedom unlike he had ever, ever experienced. Let's prepare our hearts for communion. And I love the parallel between Samson and Jesus. Let me walk through this as we prepare our hearts for communion. In so many different ways, Samson's death is a shadow of Jesus's. As we trace this, it gives us a a glimpse of the cross and really our salvation. Both Samson and Jesus were betrayed by someone who had acted as a friend. Both were handed over to the Gentile oppressors. Both were tortured and chained and put on public display to be mocked. Both were asked to perform, though Jesus, unlike Samson, refused. Both died with arms outstretched. Both appeared completely struck down by their enemies, yet both in their death crushed their enemies. Samson, the Philistines, and their god Dagon, and with Jesus destroying sin, Satan, and death for you and I. Let's pray. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, boy, we would love for you to confess him. Acknowledge your sin, believe that he died on the cross for your sins, confess him as Savior, give your life to him, and you can feel free to take communion with us here in just a few moments. God, thank you that the the symbol of these elements representing the cross just are a, a monument that we are more sinful than we ever dared to think, and yet we are more loved than we ever dared to dream. We were so sinful You had to die for us. There was no other way. And yet you loved us so much 
You wanted to die for us. Jesus, you paid it all. You not only purchased our forgiveness of sins and ticket to heaven, but everything we'll ever need. Everything we'll ever need for life and godliness through our continued all in intimacy with you. Thank you, God. Thank you. Thank you for the grace that we have. Thank you for access into your throne room. Thank you for intimacy with you. Thank you for your presence in our lives. Lord, may we not take your presence for granted. May we recommit our lives to you in this covenant relationship with you this morning, we pray in Jesus' name.